Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for feeding us already on your word and a reminder to us that you have stooped low in your humility to become the friends of humanity, and we're so grateful. Thank you for feeding us also with the bread and the wine, and we pray, Lord, that we will, um, uh, that by your grace, the gospel will continue to bury itself deeply into our hearts and to grow and bear fruit, and we pray, Lord, that the gospel will bear fruit in our lives in the area of stewardship, and as we brave into this conversation this morning, I pray that you will help all of us to enter into it humbly and and with the spirit of openness to your own challenge to us from your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you who are following the acronym, um, we're in the A part of what this week uh, for the stewardship um, series that uh, Todd, Todd Liskin sort of had, had a vision for. Um, you know what it's like in premarital counseling for those of you who did such things. I, I think premarital counseling is kind of a waste of time, to be honest with you. But I, I'm joking. I think it's fine. But um, nobody really knows what they're getting into. And, you, you know, you tell them everything. And there's just something ontological happens to the core of your being when you say, I do. Like, I don't care how well you know the person. When you say, I do, it's all bets off. It's a new ball game, right? Um, but in, in premarital counseling, uh, I do remember in, in my own premarital counseling, that, you know, the big three that all counselors tell you are, will be the struggle in your marriage are sex, in-laws, and money. Um, I'm not especially uh, insightful or skilled in any of those, to be honest with you. Um, but today we're talking about uh, the area of stewardship. Um, and, and again, I think it's very easy for us to think about um, um, stewardship primarily in the area of money and our, and our finances. I, I want to talk about it in a broader perspective today. And we're, we're going about this a little bit differently this morning. Um, I'm going to give some reflections. I've got bullet points. I've got things that I'd like to say. Um, and then I'm, I've asked Kane Burnett uh, at the end to come up and give a, a testimony about how he's sort of working these things out in his own life and, and his family. Um, but I also would like, because this is a smaller group. This isn't sort of normal assembly hall or dean's class. This is a smaller group. So as we're going along, if you want to interrupt me, let's let this be a little bit more of a repartee class kind of scenario. If you want to interrupt me, ask for clarification, push me on back, push back on something, um, feel free to do that. I, I, I would enjoy that. I think it helped me clarify my own my own thoughts as well. Okay. Um, so back back to the larger issues today. Um, I don't want to think in particular about money, though of course money will come up into this, I want to talk about a larger area, a larger area of stewardship, and that is that we have been given certain gifts in our lives that we're meant to be stewards over, or to put it in another way or another angle on, on the issue, we're asking questions about authority and ownership. That's, that's at the core of the issue here, authority and ownership. Um, so think about the areas of our lives that God has given us that we might think in terms of personal ownership, but it's really not our own ownership. We are stewards of what is God's. We think about this in the area of our children. Um, that's, that's one that's a real front and center in my own life right now. They're really technically not mine, but I'm stewarding them because they are the Lord's. Um, and that is a constant challenge and, and, and um, interaction in my own thinking and mind. 
Think about your talents and the gifts that God has given you, the particular talents that you have as they range from the arts into business into you name it. I don't know what your particular gifts and talents are, but the talents that God has given you, um, that is that is not something necessarily that we own, but they have been given to us for us to steward, to oversee, and to use again for God's glory when it comes to our money. Um, and, and, and our, our financial well-being, again, those, none of it is ours. It's, it's all the Lord's. So th- this, is, this is the kind of larger perspective that I'd like to talk about a little bit today, this notion of who owns it and how does that change our perspective on the issue that's at play. Now, why do I say this? I'm going to come back to this again. I'm going to start at the beginning with this and I'm going to end as well. Um, you do know, and if you've heard me teach enough and you've been around Advent long enough, you've heard this notion that the Christian life is a life of repentance. All of life is a life of repentance. And I'll, I'll tell you how I've had to sort of adjust in my own thinking on this. I, I, I had it in my mind, and maybe this is the case for some of you, and if it is, I want to be you when I grow up, right? Um, but I think I had a notion within my own mind that, The way in which this worked is there are certain areas of life that you learn to manage, and then once you learn to manage them, you set them on autopilot, and then the plane just sort of takes care of itself, right? In other words, I I, I had this notion about parenting at one point in time before I had kids, right? Um, if If I can just get the right parenting model, if I can apply that parenting model in a, in a rigorous way, right, and then just set it off on its course, then the plane will level out at 30,000 feet and these kids will turn out the way in which they are to be. I, I, I genuinely sort of thought that, or at least on some level, and it hasn't, that, our plane's not leveled off. I mean, we're still, lots of turbulence, you know, that's going on. Um, I thought something very, very similar about marriage. I think I think something very similar about our finances, whether it's any area of financial life that, again, you can get to a certain point with a certain level of income, and now we can get this plane leveled off, and we've just and everything's sort of smooth sailing. I, I, maybe that this happened for you, and if it has, I admire you and, and would like to take a class from you. But for me, at least, the, the issues have been the fact that every area of my life that's a stewarding ship, a stewardship area, um, requires constant attention and critical reflection. Um, Recalibration, uh, rethinking, retooling, repentance again and again. Um, I wish it weren't that way, but it is that way, I think. And I'll be very, I'm going to be as transparent as I can be this morning, and I find it exhausting at times. I think that's the part of the the plane leveling out at 30,000 feet that I was hoping for, similar to various policies that companies or even churches might put into play. You know, policies, I'm in an academic institution, policies come into play in my academic institution because one too many students come in and ask for X, right? And so if we just set up a policy, then we don't have to deal with human problems anymore, right? Just give policy, sorry, you can't take Greek before Hebrew, it's just how it's going to work, and that's the policy, because then you don't have to deal with specific situations. And I think I was policy-minded, and unfortunately, at least for me, policy-mindedness hasn't worked in the day-to-day grid of, of reality as uh, life changes and as uh, different things come along. So, um, uh, one issue here. For me, uh, in, these, in these various areas of stewardship, for me, the issue of, of money and finances is a constant challenge. I will admit this up front. As a matter of fact, I know that my mood, my wife can tell you, my mood is affected by it, right? Affected deeply by it. 
Um, and I, I didn't tell my wife I was going to say this, but my wife and her sisters here today, they grew up as, they're eight and nine of nine children here today, right? So they grew up in a very large family, and they grew up in a very poor family, right? I mean, and the kind of poor family where you hear these crazy missionary stories like, we didn't have anything to eat for Christmas, and we prayed about it, and then someone showed up on our front door with a bag of groceries kind of story, right? So she grew up in that world. I grew up in a kind of, you know, lower middle class world, um, that that you know we, we weren't rolling in the dough, but we didn't worry. I didn't. I never thought about money or am I going to have a meal today. I just didn't grow up in that world. Um, so I will say that for, it's interesting to see the dynamic in our own in our own marital relationship. Money issues just really don't bother my wife at all. She's like, whatever. Then it's going to work itself out. It'll be fine, right? Now someone will show up on the front porch with groceries. It'll be it's happening to me. I, you know, don't worry about it, right? <laughs> And I'm like, I don't know, you know, I, I, it's the, 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 and think about the middle class, I mean, I, I know you're all in this, but the middle class problems these are, right? Well, I don't know, if, you know, is my 401k gonna balance itself? I was like, that's, what a middle class problem, right? They're not worrying about that in a village in Nigeria, I'll tell you that right now, right? Um, so I'm just saying, I do think that we, for me, the area of finances is an area that does reveal the idols of my own heart. And again, it goes back to this issue of ownership. Who owns it? And who's in control? Um, I, I took stock of thinking back over our first five years in Birmingham, Alabama, giving some thought to this. Um, and it's funny how things, I'm, I'm being more candid about this than I probably should, I would prefer this not being recorded, but here it is. No, but I, you know, when, when I, we, we went, we were those very foolish people that spent all of their life savings to go off and do a PhD. I tell my students, don't do that. It's not worth it, right? Don't, don't do it. No, but I'm one of those people that we did that. You couldn't have talked me out of it. So we went, spent all of our life savings and then we come back and, and I remember being on the phone with Timothy George, our dean, and he told me a number that they were going to pay me every, for the year. And, you know, I had been a student for 10 years, right? I mean, I'd, we'd lived on students' salaries. I, I caddied, you know, on a golf course to pay rent. And my wife's going to teach in Redneck, Scotland, you know, to make sure that we can pay the bill. I mean, that's just the way that we lived. And he told me this number, and I'm like, holy moly, we've just hit the jackpot, right? <laughs> I mean, I think he was honest. It shows how naive I was. I was 28 years old. It shows how naive I was. I, I think he was waiting for me to counter. Right. And I never did. I just didn't know. But that deal, I'll take it. Right. It's wonderful. And then you get into the reality of life and you buy a house and you sign a mortgage and then you start. And I'm like, where did all that money go? Right. At the end of the month, where where is it? And so this was this was a learning curve, I think, for me to think through. and And it is to this day about the notion of all of this is the Lord's. And what does it take for someone to be secure? It's amazing how relative that is for people, I think, what it takes for them to be secure. Some people are secure if they have $5,000 in a savings account and they know that they can get through the end of the year. That's security, or at least what they think would make them secure. For other people, it's a diff- you know, there's a relativity to what makes us secure. So that's what I don't want to think in necessarily terms of particular static numbers, but this is a matter of the heart. What does it take for us to be secure? And the challenge that I think about this, I'm off script, but the challenge that I think about this for us, especially as Americans, and I don't want to do the sort of Fox News scare you thing, all right? I'm not trying to do that. But I think the challenge is we really don't know what the future holds. My wife and I lived for six months in Germany a couple of years ago, and um, our, our um, landlady was a 
fantastic woman from England who had married a, a German physicist that taught there at the University of Göttingen. She knew German history like the back of her hand. We looked out of our window there in Göttingen into an apple orchard that was owned by a Jewish family that fled the Nazis. And to this day, it's still owned by that Jewish family, but they don't know where they are. They've never been able to locate them. All this stuff is just sort of centered in Germany. And when you realize all that came together to allow the National Socialists to rise to power in the way in which they did, it was a couple of things. One was a rise in nationalism, a a rise in religious fervor that was attached to nationalism, all surrounding a particular problem. And you know what the problem was? It was the Depression. It was money, right? Hitler comes in and he provides for them um, financial stability and promise that they had not had for a decade. And she told us stories about um, her, her husband's grandfather who owned a textile company, sold it for something like 500 million Deutschmarks, which at that time they were set for life and his children were set for life. And then once inflation hit and the depression came, that was like three or four loaves of bread. I mean, it, it was incredible what happened. And I think about that as I look toward the future and put in a little money into a 401k and try to plan for the, which God says do all of that, right? We plan and we, about for the house that we're going to build, for all the things that we do in our world to plan for the future. The truth of the matter is we really don't know what the future holds. That's why James says at the end of James 1, we really should say if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that. Not, I'm going to do this or that, but if the Lord wills, we're going to do this or that. So wherever you are on the stewardship financial spectrum, and I realize that at Advent, we got people all over the map on this, but wherever you are, it's still a challenge, I think, to the core of our being and our existence. Where do we put our confidence and where do we put our security? That's, that's the challenge of this. Now, uh, there's more I wanted to say. Oh, a couple of things. Stewardship. I, I, um, There's a few theologians for me that have been very meaningful in my own development thinking-wise about being a Christian and a Christian in the modern world. One of those theologians is a fellow named Abraham Kuyper. Have any of you heard this name before? You have. Uh, Kuyper, K-U-Y-P-E-R. Kuyper was also the prime minister of the Netherlands for a while at the beginning of the 20th century. And he brought to the Netherlands really a Christian, for lack of a better term, neo-Calvinist worldview. Now, if the word Calvinism makes you break out in hives, hold on, I I understand. Um, But for for Kuyper, a neo-Calvinistic worldview that he brought to bear on society, whether it's the church, whether it is government or the state, um, any, any, any aspect that comes together to bring together a civilization, for Kuyper, his neo-Calvinist view was a view that was driven by a worldview that understood that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord and sovereign over all spheres of life. Now, we can get into the nitty-gritty of the, of the political theology behind that, and it would and be a fascinating conversation. I, don't want, I want to go much more low-flying than that. To the simple claim that Kuyper is making from a Christian worldview, that a Christian worldview entails within it a notion, and this is a direct quote from Kuyper, that Jesus stands as Lord over all spheres of life, and he looks at the world and he says, there's not one square inch of this world where Jesus does not say, that part right there, that's mine. All of it is mine. I think that's getting at the heart of a, of a mindset and a theological view on stewardship. 
There's not one square inch of our lives where Jesus doesn't come in and say, by the way, I'm Lord over that too. I'm the Lord. I'm the sovereign over that. Um, All spheres of life. Um, Whether it's our entertainment, whether it's our um, family engagements, whether it's our business practices, whether it's our going to church, there's not one area of our life that can get meted out in a way that can be separated from this fear of recognizing that Jesus Christ stands over it all and he says, I'm Lord of that. I'm Lord. That, to me, from a theology of stewardship, gets at the heart of the matter. Jesus is Lord over all spheres of our life. Money, sure, certainly. But it's more than that. He's, he is Lord over every sphere of our life. And he wants all of it uh, for himself. Right? So there's a text that I wanted to look at you, with you this morning because I want to make sure Cain gets his full time. Um, I, don't, I don't know if Cain wants his full time. It's Romans 12. If you have iPhones with Bibles or... Um, anyway, I'll read it to you. I want to talk a little bit about something here. Um, have you all gotten a Romans 12 in your small group? Yeah. Um, so here you are, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, for those of you who've done any Bible study in Romans before, you recognize that Romans 12 is kind of at the hinge point of the book of Romans. Um, Romans chapter 1 through 11, which is thick and deep waters. Matter of fact, one could say that Romans chapter 9 through 11 may be the hardest chapters in all of the Bible, right? And I love these chapters in Romans because at the end of Romans chapter 11, when I want to sort of pull out my hair, right, Paul pulls out his, his songbook and he begins to sing a praise to the Lord. Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom of God. That's how Paul responds to theological mystery and theological conundrums. As he says, I'm going to praise the Lord because my mind is not big enough to figure out all this out, but I will still praise him. So he goes from this discussion about Israel and Israel's election, which was all rooted in the first eight chapters in the gospel. And that is, God has stooped down low to us in Jesus to redeem humanity. That's all of what is often referred to in Bible speak as the indicatives of the gospel. They're the truth claims of what the gospel is. Jesus has died for humanity to bring humanity back into the very life of God. And we are saved, we are redeemed by faith alone. That's Paul's big claim that he's making in Romans 1-11. to And he goes right after that and from the indicative, the fact, the fact statements, into the imperatives. And here's the first imperative on the far side of the indicative, the truth of what Jesus has done for us. He says, now I'm beseeching you. Great King James uh, Version word, right? Now I'm imploring you. Therefore, right? Why therefore? On the basis of the first 11 chapters of what I just wrote to you, I'm appealing to you on the basis of that, that now you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing unto Him. Now that is getting, I think, at what Kuiper is talking about. On the basis of the fact that Jesus has come to you and he has given you the life and the redemption and the righteousness that you could never attain on your own, my simple appeal to you is that God now wants everything back from you. Our whole bodies as living sacrifices to him. 
And then he goes on to say something here that I find fascinating. Verse 2, And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. I think that verse right there is getting at what we were talking about at the beginning of our lesson. The plane very rarely levels off at 30,000 feet. Rather, what we're called to as Christians is a continued act of discernment, a continued act of letting our own minds and hearts to be conformed to the will of God that's revealed in the Word of God to be shaped in that way. Why? So that we can prove what it is that He wants and what it is that He desires. Because we want our desires, we want our decision-making to be in tune with what God's desires are. But one of the things I wanted to say, and then I'll turn it over. When it comes to not being conformed to the principles of this world, that is a deep, deep challenge, I think, to all of us. Because the truth of the matter is, we are all enmeshed culturally in our culture in ways that we are aware of and in many, many ways that we are not aware of. Um, I found myself... um, really taken with the German philosopher. Over, I've been reading on him over the past couple of months. A philosopher by the name of Arthur Schopenhauer. Um, Schopenhauer was a philosopher that really became the most famous philosopher in Germany in the middle 19th century all the way up until the end of the 19th century on the far side of Hegel. So Schopenhauer is a fascinating figure. Um, and you talk about a doleful um, Dora Downer philosopher, it's Schopenhauer, right? Because Schopenhauer raises the question that philosophy has raised since the beginning of really the philosophical tr- tradition, all the way back to Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and, and the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the big question is, is life worth living? And if it is, what is the good life? That's the, those are the two big philosophical questions that come out of, of Greco-Roman antiquity. Is life worth living? And if it is worth living, then what does the good life look like? And do you know what Schopenhauer says? Is life worth living? Answer, no. <laughs> this is what made him, the controversy in Germany at the time was called the pessimist controversy. It was a deep controversy because Schopenhauer said, actually life really isn't worth living. Because you want to know what life is? All of life is suffering. And when you press Schopenhauer on this, and you ask him, what do you mean all of life is suffering? He doesn't mean by that all of life is suffering because um, you're going to find out a report about cancer someday, or your mom's going to die someday, or your tomato garden's not going to come out like you planted and you hope someday. He's not talking about moments and episodes of suffering. He is saying all of life is suffering. And you say, well, why Schopenhauer is all of life suffering? And he says this through these three reasons. Number one, because our lives are driven by need, by desire. We want things. And when we don't have what we want, it's suffering. And then when we get what we want, we grow bored of it. Yes. Right? And that itself is an act of suffering. So you live between this continuum of need and boredom, right? And that is suffering. So whether you get what you want or don't get what you want, you're bound to suffer in the middle of that. And then he said a third thing. And the third thing is, I think, very crucial to our own cultural embeddedness. The third thing he said is, and the truth is our needs grow over time in such a way that satisfaction becomes more and more 
impossible. Can I read you a quote from Frederick Weiser on Schopenhauer? He says, The main contention of this third argument is that we inevitably acquire new needs which grow in intensity so that it becomes increasingly harder to satisfy them. And listen to Beiser's explanation of Schopenhauer. We are not satisfied with just a little recognition. We demand more and more until we achieve fame. And by the way, just read a review of a book that came out on the history of celebrity. Fascinating. You know what happens when people achieve the fame they want? They wish they never had it. Why? Because now they have to live up to this public persona that really doesn't correspond to their true self. And now they don't even know who they really are. Um, Benjamin Franklin ran into this. Um, anyway, his, yeah. <laughs> so once we are a little famous, we want to be more so. Schopenhauer could have used other examples, such as money and power, which were favorite targets of the Stoics and the Epicureans. Of these two, we can say that the more we have of them, the more we want them, where there is no limit to how much we want. But the greater our wants, the harder it becomes to satisfy them, so that the feelings of discontent only grows. Um, and it's so true, isn't it? Right? More and more. And, I'm, and it's not just about money about achievement, about fame, about arising at, arriving at a certain status in your profession. Now I'm there. Well, what's the next mountain that I need to climb? And now I'm there. And boy, I wish someone would have told me when I got to the top of that mountain that the air is really thin up here and it's not all the great, that great of a view. Right. So this is a real challenge to us, I think, because frankly, if I weren't a Christian, if I were not a Christian, I would say Schopenhauer, two thumbs up, right? All of life is suffering because we live between need, we live between boredom, and then once we get what we want, our desires grow in such a way that they can never be satiated. And the Christian tradition has understood this for a very long time. And that's why in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which goes back to Augustine, which goes back to Paul, which goes back to the book of Psalms, there's an answer to this, and the answer is it's God. And it's a worldview that's centered on God. So that we recognize that the good things that we want in this life, they become idolatrous when they become demands. But they're good gifts when they are uses that are used toward the end of loving and glorifying God. And that's the challenge that Paul gives us in Romans 12, I believe, to continually reflect on this stewardship principle of life. And that is, I recognize that enough is never enough. If left to myself, enough is never enough. Discontent, that is the order of the day, especially in a society like ours that is so successful monetarily across the board. I realize that's relative, but across the board, we have particular problems, particular psychological problems, that are related, mental health issues, I believe, that are related to being in a society that's so successful. Problems that you might not find in a village somewhere in Africa, right? It's very particular to our scenario here. And Schopenhauer is right. And this is where Paul comes in and he says, but don't let your mind be conformed to that. Let your mind be conformed to the gospel and to the word of God so that your desires can be rightly ordered and so that you can recognize that all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. 
and to recognize that even though we might think that a certain number in the 401k or a certain number in the savings account is what will provide us security, that the scriptures tell us again and again and again that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we're going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. So I, I hope that I mean this is a battle for me. You know, that's why I, I could come unplugged here, right? This is a bat, this is this is this is my continual struggle. My wife can tell you she'll see me sometimes on the couch looking borderline catatonic. What's wrong? The Discover Bill just came in, right? <laughs> now, it's that sort of thing, right? I mean, it's it's, it's, it's this is my struggle too. Um, but I think what Paul is telling us is don't go the Schopenhauer route. Recognize that what he's saying is true but also recognize that all these good gifts come from the Lord for the sake of his own glory and his own name. All right, Cain. Thank you, Cain, for doing this, by the way. Um, We need to switch out the mic. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's... That's... that's going to be tough for me to follow, I can just say. <laughs> but um, I guess, um, you know, we, we don't have, first of all, this is my wife, Lida, and I'm, I'm Kane. We have three small children, if, if we've not met you. Um, uh, and feel free to jump in, if you, Lida, if you have anything to, to add. But um, we don't have any sort of unified theory of giving or unified um, grand sort of um, principles, I suppose, um, as to what we do. I, I, I read an article this week that said, it was a Harvard Business School article um, of a study that Harvard Business School did back of some graduates in 1975, I think, and it said, it asked these graduates two questions. It said, um, first, do you have goals? And second, have you written your goals down? And um, the, uh, the author said that something like only 10% of people had had, had any goals and of those that, that had goals, only like 20% had written them down. So that when you combine the two, only 3% of people in the world had written goals. We don't have written goals. We're in the uh, 97%. So we don't, we don't have any sort of, uh, you know, Burnett uh, card of giving. But um, I guess some, some big picture thoughts from our family. Um, first of all, I, we, I believe, both uh, believe in a... In a a, a claims-making church, um, in, a, in a church, as a body of people that begins in your baptism, that makes claims on our lives, and that that has by by being baptized members of a of a member, uh, being a membership in the Christian community, we believe those claims. We believe that the that the church has the right to make claims on our lives, and so. Um, how, how does this present itself? I mean, it presents itself on Sunday morning. The church says, you come to church instead of reading the newspaper, which I would probably rather do. You, you, um, you do any number of things, one of which is that you support this church. You support the church. Um, and I, I think we believe that. We, we, um, we hold fast to that. Um, I, I don't know if, uh, speaking of the newspaper, if any, any of you follow... Um, a columnist, Ross Douthat, that writes for the New York Times. He, um, I really, really like his work, and he writes a lot these days in a, in a different context, but he writes about the church that has the right uh, to make claims of the impossible on our lives, um, uh, claims that say, you, you, uh, 
you now don't have the right to be prideful, even though we all are going to be prideful. And the church makes all these impossible claims on our lives. And I think one of those is is supporting the church. I mean, there are many, many times when, when I find it uh, a real stretch to, to, to support the church, when we find it very difficult to to give to the church, um, and uh, and frankly very countercultural, as Mark mentioned. Um, uh, but I think we we believe that, that that the church has that right. Um, I was struck when Mark was talking about the Schopenhauer piece. Um, I think in one sense Schopenhauer actually has it right in that we are um, is life worth living. Um, the, the Christian Church says we we've been baptized into. Christ's death. Um, so in a way that this life may not be worth living, but a new life that Christ has given us through membership in his church is, um, is hard, is, is, is countercultural, but very much worth living. Um, so I guess that's one theme in our, in our household. Um, another theme that Mark brought up is contentment. I, I'm not sure anything is harder than finding contentment. Um, uh, I am rarely content in anything, um, and uh, but I believe that the church has given us giving to to chip away at the um, sort of the barnacles of our heart when it comes to being content, and um, and giving in in times of, of of great want, I think is is a real is a real uh, spiritual discipline that's that's good for our lives. Um, and um, I think a big a big part of again for us a big part of um, the way we approach giving or think about giving is is in the in the context of, of first fruits, um, sort of giving out of um, the very first, just to put it bluntly, the very first dollars that that are given to us belong to Him. The whole everything of ours belongs to Him, and so we um, I suppose we try imperfectly, but try to respond with uh, uh, a philosophy of first fruits giving. Um, so, um, and, and maybe maybe one other point, um, not to be utilitarian about it, but we, we believe there's a lot of kingdom work to be done uh, that, um, that can be accomplished with, with what we're able to provide. Um, uh, the kingdom work is going to happen one way or the other. It's not like God is depending on our, you know, whatever small check. But it's, uh, but nevertheless, um, in the in the process of advancing the kingdom, we feel like we're a very small part of that. So, um, those are those are some general thoughts. Again, we don't have the the uh, the goals written down, but those are those are some thoughts from our life and. Um, I guess I'd be happy to answer any questions, but um, why did you have anything you want to add to that or share? Okay. <laughs> sure you do. Um, okay. Well, I will. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us into a membership. Uh, thank you for our baptisms, Lord, for um, for your church, Lord, that that um, that we are members of. Thank you for 
slowly, Lord, chipping away at our hearts, uh, replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Father, we pray that you would um, you would do that work in every aspect of our lives, Lord, and in, and and in particular, Lord, that you would uh, take away our hearts of stone as it comes to to giving, Lord, that you would um, make us cheerful and generous givers, uh, and and supporting the church and advancing the kingdom, Lord. Um, Father, we recognize that you you make um, utterly impossible claims on our lives, Lord, but that at the same time you give us your spirit uh, to accomplish that which you command, Lord. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.